Good morning. As we uh, continue our series this morning, we're going to be looking at um, it's the problem of evil and suffering, and this is the series of questions that you all came up with. And uh, there's a lot to say about this one, although the first thing I'll say is I was talking to someone uh, down the street at our new taco place, and they came in and they said, you know, I've noticed on your uh, signs that most of these issues so far are issues where there are two or three or four or five sides to them, and the problem of evil, I don't think anyone's going to be listening to that, and they're going to be on the side of evil. Just real quick poll, is anyone pro-evil? No one? All right. I can cut out the first three points then. Um, but what we're actually talking about is, uh, I'm going to read the questions to you in a second, uh, but the problem is not just evil, but the manifestation of evil, particularly in the forms of suffering and persecution. And there are actually different Christian viewpoints on those issues. And the problems of evil cover a wide range of human issues, ranging from uh, being victims of tsunamis and tornadoes all the way to racism, sexism, genocide, and the persecution of Christians around the world. And so today, we're not going to touch on all of that, but uh, we're going to address two particular questions now. The first one is this, uh, why does God allow good people to suffer while stinkers live the high life? Now, aside from a laudable act of self-censorship, uh, I think that is uh, a good question that a lot of us answer, uh, have to wrestle with when he, uh, why do good people or seemingly good people suffer while other people, stinkers, live the high life? And the second question was, uh, more general, why does God allow suffering? The li- this life seems to be full of suffering and misery, wars, famines, catastrophic storms, and dictators that plunge once prosperous, na- prosperous nations into bankruptcy. And that, once again, that's too much for a 20, 30 minute sermon. Uh, but what we, we can't do all of that, but we are gonna touch on a lot of it, and I hope to give you the tools for thinking about that. Um, but first, the story. And uh, now I got permission from this person to tell this story. Uh, but a friend of mine uh, was having stitches removed from his knee. And he gets a little queasy at the doctor. So they were taking the stitches out of his knee and he passed out. And they, they kind of woke him up roughly. And they said, well, that's not normal. That shouldn't happen. And while they were waking him up, he vomited on the nurse who was re- reviving him. And she was not happy with him. And so she told him that he had to go get a CAT scan now because he passed out while they were removing stitches. Now, to him, this seemed like punishment. This was uh, a petty retaliatory uh, stroke on the, on the part of the nurse. But when they took him in, they found a brain cyst that was previously unknown. So what seemed like pointless hassle turned out to be potentially life-saving. And so that's just... To illustrate the first point that I want to make here, and the first point is this, is that suffering sometimes, big emphasis on the sometimes, depends on your perspective. Now, I've got uh, five points that I'm going to make this morning, which is a little more than usual, but don't worry, they're only about 20 minutes apiece. Um, <laughs> what better way to teach you about suffering? <laughs> That's... Uh, <laughs> 
Um, but the first one is this, is that suffering sometimes depends on your perspective. Now, for my friend, by the end of that day, he had a new perspective, and what seemed like suffering five minutes ago now is potentially life-saving, and he says, oh, well, there, that actually wasn't suffering. That was uh, good for me. Sometimes we don't get feedback that quickly on our own suffering. Now, most of us tend to operate with this assumption, and it happens all too naturally, but it's completely unwarranted. But here's the assumption that we have, and this is what makes suffering so difficult. We expect to be able to understand and explain everything. We think that everything is accessible to our human minds. And if you need to uh, get an illustration of this, just Google the weather. And if you want to know the weather for the next week, most of us have phones. If not, we have a computer or a TV or a radio. And they will tell you not only what the weather will be for the next five to seven days, but why it will be that way. Now, that's something we take completely for granted. But a 100 years ago, and for the rest of the history of the world and across the world, that knowledge would seem nothing short of omniscient. We would just seem all-knowing to know what the weather will be and why it will be that way seven days from now. Yet we now assume that we'll get to know that. And that is one of the many ways in which we now assume that if there's a reason for something, we will have that reason. We are owed that reason. But that's not necessarily the case. Uh, And so in our first uh, story there about my friend, uh, he was able to see the silver lining of his struggle within a few hours of the problem, but sometimes it takes days, years, or decades to gain that perspective. Now, I don't want to retell the whole story here, but in the book of Genesis, there's a guy named Jacob, and he has a son named Joseph, and uh, he has this, uh, if you don't know it from the Bible, you might know about his Technicolor dream coat, but uh, Joseph is uh, kidnapped by his brothers and sold into slavery. And then as the story progresses, Joseph rises to power in Egypt, the place where he was sold as a slave. And in Israel, Jacob and his sons are struggling from famine. And so Jacob has to send the rest of his sons to go get food from Egypt. And Jacob, the father at this point, thinks that he has hit the ultimate low point of his entire life. His favorite son was sold uh, sold into slavery. He's told that he's actually dead. So he thinks he's already lost his favorite son. His homeland is struggling and dying. And now he has to send his other sons off to get food for his homeland, not knowing if they'll return. But as the reader, we actually have information that he doesn't have at that time. And we know that everything in his life is about to be worked out. Because his favorite son is about to be uh, brought back to him alive and well. And his family is about to be delivered and restored But the matter of perspective there, so sometimes suffering depends on perspective. There are times when short-term suffering or sudden evil strike us, and we're frustrated by the pointless nature of it and not being able to understand why suffering is happening to us. And that's a perfectly natural question. And uh, In fact, if you can believe it, I wrote the entire first draft of the sermon without reference to the book of Job. And my wife read it, and she said, I think you forgot Job. And I was like, that's a good point. Um, so, since since we're talking about Job, uh, there's nowhere in the Bible that promises us this type of answer. That when we see things that seem completely pointless uh, in their nature, and we're not able to understand them, the Bible never tells us that we should be able to understand those, or that we will be able to understand those. In fact, 
most of the book of Job, Job spends uh, complaining about this circumstance, and he lays out his case again. How many of you have read the book of Job all the way through? Okay. Have you noticed that it gets a little repetitive? Because he just... I mean, and but that's what it's like. When you're going through suffering by yourself or with someone, you hear them just stating their case again and again and again about why this doesn't, this shouldn't be happening to them. And eventually, Job turns this very dangerous corner where he starts making accusations toward God. And now this is one of my favorite God moments in all of Scripture. I'm going to read just a few verses, but it's actually uh, two or three full chapters, starting in Job 38. God finally answers, and he says this, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens my counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man, I will question you, and you will make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk, or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? And he goes on for two chapters asking Job questions that Job has absolutely no way to know as a way of reminding Job that he doesn't actually know everything. And so God, who in that book seemingly allowed this suffering to happen to Job, and knows the answers to all those questions and more, has uh, his own reasons for allowing whatever he's allowing. And uh, Job, Job takes the position of judge, which he's not qualified to hold. And so the only one in the position to judge whether suffering is pointless or not is the one who is the vantage point of the entirety of history. And so... The assumption that we have, we're tempted to believe that if there were a good reason for suffering, then we would surely be able to see it. But that's not the case, and we actually don't have any reason at all to think that. Now, that's not good news, and I would urge you, this is this is a point to reflect on, to think about, to take with you. It is not one to share with a friend at a funeral. It's It's not, there are times and places where We can have these conversations and there are other times where we can't. So the first point was that, that suffering sometimes depends on your perspective. Now, obviously, sometimes it doesn't, but sometimes it's just a matter of perspective and uh, God's view of things. The second is this, is that suffering and evil isn't always just proportionate or fair. Now, that's, you may have listened to that last point and thought, you know, sure, in one out of a hundred cases, you can find the silver lining. But what about the other 99 cases? Surely, even if we wait long enough, even if God's perspective, there are things that are just evil and they just happen. And so we're often tempted here to think that there must be some reason for our hardships, and there there is ultimately. Uh, but sure enough, many of my own struggles, now my own, as in Mike Jorgensen's struggles, have resulted from my own stupidity, arrogance, or neglect. But there are other struggles that I've gone through that still, as far as I know, have no explanation, no value at all. They are just the result of evil. They are suffering for the sake of suffering. And if, now this is the point here, if each person were directly responsible for all of their own suffering and hardship, then we wouldn't be able to call that suffering evil. That would actually just be some system of cosmic justice. I'll say that again. 
if we were directly responsible for all the suffering that comes our way, and it was just a measured response to our own sin, our own shortcomings, then that wouldn't actually be evil. That would actually just be justice. But we, uh, as Christians, know, and we've seen plenty of times, that the suffering and evil that comes our way is far out of proportion. And Christians don't believe in karma, and Jesus does not teach us that suffering is always fair. In fact... If you read the Psalms, the Bible's book of worship, one-third of them are full of lament. They're petitions to God, complaining about how unfair present suffering is. And when we look back to Job, we'll see the same thing. Job, who's seemingly, even by the book's own description, a very good man, terrible, disproportionate evil happens to him. And we never really find out why. And so while some suffering might be explainable or even redeemable, there is some that is horrific and tragic and unexplainable. Now, the ultimate explanation for evil is sin, the Christian understanding of what sin is. And for those of you who uh, need a refresher course, the definition of sin that I like to use is culpable shalom breaking, meaning shalom being the peace and flourishing and wholeness that is created by God in the created order in Genesis 1 and 2, anything that violates that, anything that breaks the relationship between uh, humanity and man, between person and person and between person and creation, anything that violates that created order is shalom breaking, and we are culpable for it. And so that is where the problem of evil comes from, and all sin, all evil, all persecution and uh, suffering comes ultimately from that. And so the problem here, which we're getting to, is that uh, we are all participants in the source of the problem. So when it comes to the problem of pain, the problem of suffering, the problem of evil, we are all people who have sinned and we've fallen short of the glory of God. We've broken that shalom, that peace that God created, and our actions have resulted in suffering and pain for others. And so every time we ask God to bring a swift end to evil, suffering, and its sources, we're actually praying condemnation on ourselves. Now the good news is, which we'll get to a little later, is that God has found another way. He's found another way to deal with sin and pain and suffering without wiping all of us out, which is uh, something he'd be well within his right to do. So that's the second point. The third is this, uh, that bad things do happen to good people. Now, this is where we really get to our question. Um, now, not only do bad things happen to good people, which seems unfair in and of itself, but add insult to injury, seemingly good things happen to bad people. And so when we get this question, why does God allow good people to suffer while stinkers live the high life? First of all, we could... Now, some of you may be thinking, well, Jesus says no man is good, and Romans 3 says no one is good. Um, and... Keeping that in mind, we'll keep, we'll move forward. But why does God allow good people to suffer while stinkers live the high life? There might be something wrong that's baked into that question that I want to address, which is we might have a bad idea of what the high life is. In 2011, now I saved this article in 2011 and it's finally come in use. <clears throat> but in 2011, in the New York Times, they uh, had an article that pitted two pieces of data against each other. 
And it had an index rating for the happiest places on earth in terms of, you know, how much money, the quality of your health care, access to, you know, all of the luxuries in life. And it also had another one uh, of the highest suicide rates, and they were the same. The, pl- the happiest places on earth had the highest suicide rates. And so what that should have told some researcher is there's something wrong with our definition of the happiest place on earth. There's something wrong with what we think of as the high life. And so when we see people living whatever, I don't know who asked that question and I don't need to know, but whenever we see someone living what we think is the high life, we may do well to remember that how we define the high life in America is not how God defines the high life scripturally. And we can see, uh, unfortunately, where that ends. And so what this says is that our assessment of what is good in life is frequently flawed. And so when we ask, why do bad things happen to good people? and Why do good things happen to bad people? We need to maybe reassess uh, what we're talking about here. But on the other hand, Jesus tells us that we can expect this type of mistreatment and struggle and that we ought not be surprised by it. Now, in John 15, 18 to 20, which I believe is the text in your bulletin. I'm going to read it to you right now. Jesus has just told them a chapter earlier that a servant is not greater than his master. And he says this, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would not would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of this world, therefore the world hates you. Remember, that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If you if they kept my word, they will keep yours as well. And then 1633, he winds up this section and says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And so... With our third point here, bad things happen to good people, good things happen to bad people. This should not be surprising to a Christian, should not throw them off, because our whole faith system is founded on a bad thing happening to a perfect person. Actually, not not a bad thing happening to a good person, but the worst thing happening to the best person. We showed up at church today, a Christian church, and you met for Jesus Christ, who was a son of God a perfect person and the worst possible thing, humiliation, torture, and death happened to him. And he says here, basically, if that's what happened to me and you're following me, why would something different than that happen to you? And that's a good question, and I'm not going to answer that for you. Instead, we're going to move on because I've got a few more points here. But just want you to keep that in mind. So the just a recap for you. Suffering sometimes depends on your perspective. Sometimes suffering is actually a mechanism for bringing about good, or sometimes God uses that suffering to work good. Uh, suffering and evil is not always just proportionate or fair, and bad things do happen to good people, and vice versa. <clears throat> and the fourth point is this, is that we learn a lot about ourselves in the midst of suffering. Uh, there's a uh, famous author, speaker named Brene Brown, and she explained part of her journey and faith this way. And now this is one where I'm borrowing this perspective from her because I can't possibly imagine any of the, and you're going to understand 
why this metaphor is not one I could have come up with. But here it is. She says, I went to church thinking it would be like an epidural, that it would take the pain away. But church isn't like an epidural. It's like a midwife. I thought faith would say, I'll take the pain and discomfort away. But what it ended up saying was, I'll sit with you in it. Now, that's not a a metaphor that's natural to me. I've never considered an epidural or a midwife, but um, I think that's a helpful perspective. And uh, we learn a lot about ourselves in the midst of sitting through that suffering. And we actually build relationships with others through that. And the pastor, Tim Keller, says it this way. He says, though Christianity does not provide the reason for each experience of pain, it provides deep resources for actually facing suffering with hope and courage rather than bitterness and despair. And so sometimes our reaction to suffering tells us a lot about our assumptions about the world and life. When we respond very bitterly to something not going our way, you actually learn that you have assumed something about yourself and how you think the world should be treating you on any given day. And uh, now for another perspective, I read a few accounts this week that provided a completely other perspective for me, that provided great insight, that was really a heads up for me. And this is the fifth point here, is that Christianity, it, not only do we learn about ourselves in suffering, but Christianity equips us for suffering. Now, there's a fantastic uh, blog article out there on the Gospel Coalition's website from a woman named Shar Walker. The article is called this, Three Things I Learned Growing Up in the Black Church. And so I'm going to read, uh, now this is a longer quote, but I want you to hear it because it's important. And she says it this way. She says, the African-American church is a miracle. My people clung to the same God my people were taught had made them less than human. The black church was birthed from a place of marginalization and hardship. From its foundations, it has known dark times, but it has also been given the privilege of experiencing God as shield and strength. I wondered how the members of my church endured seasons of burying children, unfaithful spouses, injustice in their communities, and unfair systems they were fighting against. I watched these men and women show deep resolve and uh, to follow God when reason whispered not to even try. It was as if, in a healthy way, suffering was expected. There was a palpable understanding that we live in a fallen and fractured world, and the greatest days for Christians are always ahead. That's the end of the quote. Now, the, the thing that really jumped out there for me was she said, growing up in the African-American church, uh, she learned this. She says, it was as if, in a healthy way, suffering is expected. Because she learned, and she learned in a very palpable way that we live in a fallen and fractured world. And so how could we have anything? Now, doesn't that align with what Jesus just said in John 15? Now, Mike Edmondson is another uh, pastor, scholar, uh, writer, and he says it this way. He says, redemptive suffering is a widespread and deeply cherished belief within the black church tradition. And so here's what I learned about myself is some of the questions I'm asking People in America, in Christianity, in America, don't even share those questions. Because I was coming to it with a certain perspective, certain expectations, and I learned something about myself. I learned that I think the world should treat me fairly, and that nothing bad should ever happen to me. 
I learned that there is such a concept as redemptive suffering and that it is a privilege to be able to experience God as strength and shield, as Psalm 28.7 promises. And so we're foolish beyond measure if we do not learn from the wisdom of the African-American Christian experience. This is one of the reasons that God gives us each other. People from different places and experiences bring different perspectives. And as multi-ethnic church, we're ready to learn from everything that God has to teach his church. And so there are things in the moments of suffering that you cannot learn from just sitting in your room and reflecting on it yourself with your uh, trapped in your own head, but only through learning from other Christians. And it's uh, by sharing one another's burdens that we begin to grow. And so now in conclusion here, I want to share my final thought, and I want you to really think on this. And this is a quote from, uh, it's a book called The Reason for God from Tim Keller. And he goes through all of his thoughts on suffering and evil and everything else, And he says, ultimately, the Bible doesn't tell us what the reason is for suffering, for persecution, for evil still happening to us. He says, and so whatever the reason is, which the Bible doesn't tell us, we know for certain what the reason isn't. So we don't know what the reason is, but we know what the reason isn't. And the reason can't possibly be that God doesn't care. And it can't possibly be that God is powerless to do something about it because God has personally entered into it in the form of Jesus Christ. And he has personally conquered sin and death and evil in his resurrection. And he says this, he says, then why did, you know, why did Jesus do it? Why did Jesus come and suffer and die uh, the way that he did? It says the Bible, uh, the Bible says that Jesus came on a rescue mission for creation. He had to pay for our sins So that someday he can end evil and suffering without ending us. So Jesus had to come and suffer and die. That is how God takes on the problem of evil and suffering. Because as a reminder, sin is how evil and suffering enters the world. And we are all culpable of that sin as the Bible defines it. And so if you want to find a way to end evil and suffering without ending us, it has to be paid for in some way. And so to recap... For you this morning, suffering sometimes depends on your perspective. Sometimes it isn't just or fair. Bad things do happen to good people. We learn about ourselves in suffering. Christianity, and particularly Jesus Christ, uh, equips us for suffering. And God himself has entered into and overcome our suffering and our evil. Now, the doctrine of the resurrection, which we just observed on uh, Easter, provides hope for a future beyond senseless evil, beyond unjust suffering, and a purification from sin uh, for each person that is in Christ that um, causes pain to others. And so Jesus is the key to defeating evil and suffering. He is the means for overcoming it, and he is the hope for the future. Will you join me in prayer?